The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we'll go ahead and get started. A big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time today. Feel free to come up and introduce yourself, or if you have any questions, we have a couple program hosts. I know Dan is program hosting, and Dan, is there somebody else that's doing it? Oh, Andrew. So Andrew and Dan are available if you have any questions about the center. And uh, usually at the end of the month, I just remind folks, in case you're new, how the center operates since 1993, so now 25 years, a long time. We've operated in, uh, under this sort of principle that existed in Southeast Asia, the monasteries that have always sort of had open doors. They've always been community centers in that part of the world. People could just come and go. There was no like a fee or something like that. And we thought, well, even though this is different, we're not monastics. We have you know lives and our staff get paid and teachers get support from the donations that are offered. But still, we wanted to have that same spirit where everything that happens here is offered as a free gift. But that means that the community has to practice receiving it as a free gift. And if you're like me, that's not always easy. It's always suspicious when someone wants to offer a a free gift, like, where's the sales pitch going to come? So if this sounds like a sales pitch, please give me some feedback, because the whole point is it's not a sales pitch which means we have to receive it as a free gift, no strings attached, and just let that in. For as long as you want to, just let it in. And if ever at any point you want to be part of making this place happen and available for the community, then just find a way for that generosity to flow in a way that makes sense in your life with your particular circumstances and interests and whatever. And there's any number of ways to do that, and we have some information in the sheet of paper by the donation bowls and online, of course, and Gail Iverson, our bookkeeper and longtime teacher here, uh, she works on Tuesdays, but usually there's somebody in the office during the week if you have questions about how that might look or just check in with one of the teachers at the end of the program. So uh, you might pick up from the guided meditation We've been looking at this theme generally of emptiness and in particular the last few weeks of abiding, abiding in emptiness. And I know, as I mentioned in the guided sit, that's a provocative phrase. And I mean, the the terrible, tricky thing, terrible in the sense that it's tricky, is um, when we hear words like emptiness or even more sort of pleasant phrases like the nature of the mind in Buddhism, later schools of Buddhism, there's this concept, bodhicitta, the awakened heart, beautiful. It has sort of a beautiful expression in later Buddhist traditions and just the imagery and poetry and teachings around bodhicitta, this sort of awakened heart that cares about all beings. It's really beautiful. But if it becomes a concept bodhicitta or the nature of mind or emptiness or freedom or nibbana, when these words are just a concept that the mind clings to, then it's not going to help. It's just not, right? Or maybe it provides sort of a stepping stone. So instead of my mind being fixated on wealth, 
or power. It's fixated on wanting to become a bodhisattva who lives their life for the benefit of others. But the internal experience, my subjective experience, will still be a heart that's grasping, trying to become, wanting to be seen as, right? So whether your desire is to want to be seen as sort of a superhero or corporate giant or, you know, whatever it might be, or as a bodhisattva, someone who loves all beings unconditionally, internally our lived experience will be one of attachment, will be feeling contracted. Do you notice that I'm a bodhisattva? <laughs> you know, or, you know, do you notice that I'm a c- corporate giant? And, or, but somehow uh, looking for ground, a mind, the internal experience of our mind or our heart is looking for solid ground looking to establish the sense of me and mine, or I mean mine, somewhere. And some of those pictures of like what the mind is attached to, we would uh, probably most of us agree, yeah, that's a prettier picture of what I'm attached to than what I used to be attached to, right? So there is some, I'm not saying there isn't movement. I mentioned sometimes, you know, my years uh, working in the schools, first as an elementary school teacher in the early 80s, and then later as a special ed teacher and a behavior specialist in the city, Minneapolis. And, and uh, one of the real tragedies is seeing how young people can be identified with being bad. You know, that's their identity, and they cling to it because it's their ground, like in their swirl, often not good conditions, circumstances in their childhood, right? They, like all human beings, think we need solid ground. And human beings will take any kind of solid ground they can get, including I'm bad. You know, I'm the one who's bad. I'm the one who nobody likes. I'm the one who... But at least I know who I am. That's my ground, right? So in these abiding practices, and it would be interesting to see what your experience was from the guided meditation tonight and your practice at home, you know, we're really paying attention to what's not there. It's a different kind of meditation because a lot of times we do more of an object-oriented meditation where we're paying attention to something. But now we're being invited to pay attention to what's not there, like the absence of remorse. Right? It's very easy for me to like, fixate on a mistake I made and use my meditation, you know, oh, why did I say that and what can I do to make amends and basically problem solving. We unfortunately use a lot of our meditation or quiet time just to solve the problems. We're too busy in our normal states to realize need some reflection. But we don't want to use our meditation time just to problem solve. You need another time. Go walk around a lake, solve all the problems that need solving. And then when you sit down and meditate, that's already been done, right? Or talk it out with a friend or something. But then when you meditate, we often want to move toward these practices of noticing what's not there. So even when you use a meditation object, right, like especially in the way that we train here with in like early Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism, you know, where we're not using a lot of mantras and not using visualizations, we're using more natural present moment things, but even something like mindfulness of breathing, 
initially the instructions are to notice the breath. But then very quickly in noticing the breath, we're also noticing that the mind has let go of other objects. Like what the, the sort of space of seclusion, as I am called it in the guided meditation set. Right? It's like, oh, I don't have to attend. Because I'm aware of the breath coming in, I don't have to be, in a sense, just to make it provocative, I don't have to be tormented by all the other objects of experiences I might be otherwise noticing. Like that subtle movement, Helen's sneezing, or you know, something's happening in the room. Or just some other movement of emotion. But I'm, because I ha- I'm grounding here, I'm not grounding anywhere else. I'm not fixated anywhere else. And to sort of notice that space of seclusion it's like you go up north and you're sitting in the woods or sitting on the uh, shore of Lake Superior or some place. It's like you can get totally obsessed about the plants, the birds, the trees. But what's really nice is to notice the absence of civilization, to notice the absence of city sounds, to notice the absence of smells in a sense, the city smells, right? To notice that that buzz of people doing people stuff, that this space is empty of that civilized activity or the uncivilized civilized activity of human activity, right? So to notice the absence. And then the next stage, you know, the absence of the mind being pushed around by mental activity because the default habit is to take our mental activity personally. So whatever perception I have, the mind has, whatever feeling tone is associated with every perception. Perception just means the mind is recognizing something. Oh yeah. And it kind of labels it. Oh yeah, I'm thinking about that. And then we have, there's a feeling tone. And then generally often there's an intention, like I'm going to think about that again. Or I'm going to think about it in a different way. Or I'm going to, not think about that. But all that is mental activity. All of that can't be stopped. A lot of people misunderstand meditation practice as a way to stop mental activity. It can quiet down, but the way the mind, that mental activity quiets down isn't because somebody wants to quiet it down. That's just more mental activity, of course. Is by noticing the space of dispassion, right? So a note, instead of noticing the mind that's taking the mental activity personally, we can notice the mind that isn't so concerned about the, met, uh, the, met, uh, the mental activity. Right? So that's a different part of the mind to notice, and it really, really matters what the mind pays attention to. Like in the first happiness of non-remorse, right? If I'm paying attention to my mistakes, I'll completely miss the space of non-remorse. But if I notice all the things, all the bad things I didn't do, right, then there's the space of non-remorse. Oh yeah, I've navigated the last 48 hours and I haven't made all those mistakes I could have made. Not to to say we didn't make any mistakes, but what am I going to choose to pay attention to? all the little and not so little things I did wrong in the last few days? Or am I going to notice 
all the holes I didn't fall into, all the mistakes I didn't make, as a kind of emptiness, you know, that's the space of non-remorse, non-guilt. Oh yeah, I did well enough. And that feels like this. That's the space of non-remorse. And then the happiness of seclusion is noticing the mind being free of the diversity of experience. I don't have to pay attention to that. It's so nice. It's like a lot of times we get it, you know, we go into some sensory deprivation. We shut the window shades at night and, you know, the lights go, it's dark and it's somewhat quiet in our rooms. And but we can do this even in the midst of activity by just giving the mind permission, like you're going to be hearing sounds, honey, but you don't have to listen to those sounds. You're going to be feeling sensations, but you don't have to... This is a problem with meditators. I bet this will be very familiar to some of you where you sit down, you know, you do your job settling. But then you feel there's, this is a neurotic thing that meditators can be mistaken about, like, oh, I've got to pay attention to the pain in the knee. Or the, the weight feels, doesn't feel distributed right in the buttocks. You know, one sits bones has more. Oh, no, this spine isn't quite right, you know. Or, and we're just, again, it's like problem-solving except on this level we're trying to find the perfect bodily position. But does that ever end? It never ends. But the way to resolve it is just to say, you know what? The sensations in the body are good enough. I'm not going to pay attention to them anymore. I gave it 60 seconds at the beginning of the set or a couple minutes at the beginning of the set, made some adjustments, did my best, and now I'm not going to be obsessed about the different sensations in the body. I'm retreating. I'm secluding the attention from focusing and feeling personally responsible to how the body feels. And you know what? We do this all the time. You put a good movie in front of me for, you know, whatever, two hours, I'm not that concerned about the sensations in my body. Right? Isn't that true? But when we're sitting, it's all of a sudden we feel like, oh, now I've got to moment by moment totally be parental about the sensations of my body. And we end up suffering through the whole set because the body, as, sen- you know, as this movement of sensations, it isn't designed to be perfect. If you haven't noticed that, you're gonna <laughs> this will be a profound, and actually it's a liberating discovery because then all of a sudden you're liberated from this neurotic sense that you're responsible to make your body feel comfortable. It's never gonna be comfortable, never. I mean, you'll have moments when some discomfort goes away and you'll deludedly think your body's comfortable. But you're just in the afterglow of some discomfort being taken care of and that feels really good and you're oblivious to how it's not yet perfect because you're so sort of absorbed into how good it feels that you took care of that particular pain, right? Like you've been standing all day and then you lie down and you think you're comfortable, but if you just stay there long enough, you realize you're not comfortable. It just felt so good to lie down that you forgot how all of the other little discomforts in the body. And the way we resolve this as a human being is not by this sort of parental looking for the discomforts, but realizing it's good enough. I'm not going to pay attention to it. It's like people who have homes, apartments, you could be completely obsessed about how it could be better and never enjoy the comfort, the sort of like, it's good enough. 
So I'm going to let go of noticing this little crack, noticing the fingerprints. It's like I walk into common ground because I have that sort of critical mind. I notice everything. I notice a little fingerprints on the wall this morning. I notice some stains by the garbage cans in the community room I wiped up. I notice the crumbs. I notice the sink. You know, I checked the dishwasher. There were some dishes that didn't get... I notice all these things. I notice somebody locked the door last night to the office. It's not supposed to be locked. <laughs> Anybody want to trade mines? <laughs> no, I, I, we often kid people who kind of have been uh, part of the early scene of Buddhism, this sort of school of Buddhism getting established here in the West is like some of the early n- leaders need to be neurotic because neurotic people start things, <laughs> you know, and they suffer a lot. And then hopefully there will be a next generation <laughs> that can provide leadership but w- won't suffer as much. <laughs> so the second, like we want to get good at abiding in these spaces where we know, we're giving the mind permission, honey, you don't need to pay attention to that. We do this in our relationships with our partners, our good friends, where if we're neurotic, we think we have to make our partners perfect. But if you're going to actually have a successful relationship, you're giving permission for them to be who they are. And you're really letting go of like feeling responsible for, probably this is true for those of you who have kids. I I didn't have kids. I have a cat. (laughs) I think we let go sooner with pets than we do with children, probably, where we feel like responsible for shaping them a particular way. And it never ends. Like, when does your kid, your partner, get done? Like, when does that renovation project end? <laughs> never. But I tell you, there are moments of real peace when I realize it's not my responsibility. I can retreat from the responsibility of needing this person to be different than they are. It's such a relief. And that's the first seclusion. And then the second seclusion, or the third rather, what, the, what I call dispassion, or the Buddha, in Buddhism we call dispassion, is within our own mental activity we're stepping away. It's like the mind is the way it is. It's going to have the perceptions, the intentions, the feelings. So we're sitting there, we're pretty chilled out, right, because we're meditating, and we've already got a little taste of seclusion. And then we're just shifting gears to more subtle abiding. Now we're going to abide like letting the thinking mind be whatever it is. And this really corrects that mistaken idea that meditation is about stopping mental activity. It's about having a peaceful relationship with mental activity. It's different. We're not me trying to stop my mental activity. In a sense, if you want to say me, But in any case, there is an intention to just let mental activity be mental activity, to observe it, to be intimate. So we're not distancing ourselves. We're right there feeling what the mind is feeling, seeing what the mind is seeing, you know, the perceptions, and feeling the volitional intentions to do things, but, but just willing to feel it all, to see it all. It's just that natural movement of the mind. And it's so nice not to have to take it personally or feel compelled. You could have the most despicable or the most sublime thought, but you're not compelled to do anything about it. It's such a relief. In the same way, in a more gross level, 
in terms of the peace of non-remorse, noticing my actions are good enough, or secluding, like, I don't have to be that animal that has to notice everything. You know, I can withdraw from noticing, give myself a break from paying attention to the different sense experiences, what I see, what I hear. Don't need to worry about it. It's so great now, you know, when I'm meditating, and I'll even hear, like, at home alone, I'll hear a strange sound. It's like, okay, the worst scenario, someone's breaking in. Well, that's okay. I'm just... So whatever that probability is, so let's say it's one out of 200, that that sound that I just heard represents some sort of... I'm going to play the odds and just let it be, you know? Because the mind can imagine all sorts of things. Did I lock the door? You know, whatever. But we don't have to pick it up now. We can choose not to pick it up. And so you see all of these abidings, just this different frequency levels of meditation non-remorse, seclusion, dispassion. The next one refers to cessation. And it's really about what the mind is choosing not to pay attention to. So when we're, this more subtle one, the space, what I call the space of the mind, the space of awareness, the space of the present moment, we're choosing not to pay attention to any self-centered activity, any selfing, any I'm-making or mind-making now, it's the mind at this point is already pretty chilled out. Things are pretty quiet. So it's not going to be really gross-level self-centered dramas. So we're noticing the space of the mind. And we have to notice that. Otherwise, we're going to notice all the subtle selfing, all the subtle self-centered dramas, right? You've got to throw the mind a bone, as we say. You've got to give it something to pay attention to so it's not paying attention to the more gross level neurotic stuff. So in the first step, we're asking the mind to notice all the mistakes we haven't made, the space of non-remorse, so it doesn't you know, get fall into guilt about the mistakes, all the imperfections. In the next stage, we're giving the mind something to pay attention to, like feel the body sitting, so it's not ha- going to notice every sound of somebody moving in the room. right? And then the third... Right? We're noticing that sort of the pleasantness of not being pushed around by mental activity. Right? That's the happiness of dispassion. It's kind of a ease. Like, oh, I don't have to take my mind, the mental activity personally. And I'm noticing that ease, and that just allows the kids to play. You know, just do whatever you're going to do. Maybe there's jumping on the beds. You know, or maybe they're messing with things, but I'm not going to intervene with the children right now. You know, those of you who are parents, you do that sometimes, right? You just sort of like, I'm not going to be one of those hovering parents. And it's the same thing with our mental activity. You know, mind, do whatever you're going to do. I'm just going to let it run. Like somebody left a radio on, you know, and sometimes the radio's nice and serene and playing the music we like, and sometimes it's like shock radio or whatever music or radio you wouldn't want to listen to. But it's not your responsibility right now. Your responsibility is to notice that it's not your responsibility and the ease of that. Ah. And then the, the next one, the sort of experiencing the mind, is you're noticing the absence of selfing. 
So you're noticing that like space has an, imp- has an impersonal vibe to it. And y- some of you who've been meditating for a while know that that in Buddhism, in this school of Buddhism, we call it the anatta. That's the Pali word for the impersonal nature, the selfless nature. We're tuning into that. So in, instead of the frame, framing the present moment as happening to me, my experience, so framing it in a personal way, we're noticing it on purpose in an impersonal way. And we're purposefully not noticing the present moment in a personal way. And so then, then we get the release, the peace of the mind not established in any personal frame, in any self-centered framing. Right? It's just nature, not self. We're just noticing that. And then there's even one more, more refined abiding, and it's really the integration. So when we have that insight of cessation, like we really sense the space of the mind free of self-centered activity, how empty the mind is of self-centered activity in just a moment, then the the next one, that uh, abiding and letting go, like a free fall, is really the integration of non-selfing. So moment after moment of non-selfing, like as a way of being, a new way of being. But don't worry about, because it's all from gross to subtle. That's the important thing, right? And it's all about training the mind not just to notice what it's in the habit of noticing, but to notice the absence of it. And it's like a stepping stone from a mind that is operating in a more ordinary or gross and therefore reactive mode where we're basically an emotional being, you know, a social being who has in- internalized all kinds of ways of judging ourselves because we want to fit in, we want to be liked. So we're hypersensitive to sort of fitting whatever ideal we have for ourselves and not fitting it, right? And so there's a lot of guilt. We're basically shaping ourselves by punishing ourselves with guilt. That's, and then we choose not to pay attention to that. Now, it really helps. This is why ethical conduct is such a foundational practice, not just in Buddhism, but probably in any spiritual system. Because you're not going to be able to do that if you're spending your day cheating people and hitting people and abusing people. Right? You need to be living a pretty harmonious life to be able to reflect on the space of non-remorse, non-guilt. We call it the, the peace of the just, right? The sleep of the just. If we're a bad person, we're not going to sleep well at night. And it's the same with meditation. If we justify sort of being unconscious of how we're part of cycles of suffering, right? Then we're that sort of unconsciousness and that um, sort of justification for oppression and hatred, for, excuse me, throwing people out of our hearts, that will keep us up at night and will keep us from this basic happiness of feeling the happiness of non-remorse, really tuning in. Uh, I'm not perfect, but my life is harmonious enough. The commitment to not harming is strong enough 
that it's actually a thing of beauty and I'm going to bring it to mind on purpose for a few minutes and I'm going to learn to rest, abide in the integrity of the life that's being lived. And maybe at another time I'll bring to mind those places in my life that are not yet perfect and I'll look at the causes and look at what amends need to be made, but not now. Now I'm going to contemplate the goodness of this life. And we don't hear that enough. It's really where what in Western psychological circles we might call self-esteem is this capacity to reflect on our life and to, f- and to have a good feeling. Like Not that it, we're perfect. We don't want to be deluded in thinking that we can't become more committed to not harming, more interested in the subtle roots of class, sexism, racism, that we're all complicit in, right? But we also want to feel good about the work we've done and are doing and really let it land and let it allow the mind to rest a little bit more. And then that allows the mind to seclude itself. Because I feel like I'm doing a good enough job, then I can put down the burden of being an erotic being. And I'm just going to be with this breath or the sensations of the body. And for a while, I'm dropping my duties and responsibilities of having to become a better human being on that more gross level. I'm practicing dropping, 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 dropping. So first we drop the obsession with being bad, then we drop the obsession of having to pay attention to everything, and then we drop having to take our thoughts personally, and then we drop even needing to frame this experience in a personal way, like that this is happening to me, even the more subtle ways we personalize experience, like even taking consciousness, awareness personally. There's knowing, but that's it. We're not like, I'm knowing. That's that realizing the cessation of, and there's a, that kind of happiness is very peaceful. A peace that sort of shocks the mind because the mind hasn't experienced that peace. It's like a burden we've been carrying from day one. We have no idea what it feels like to put that burden down until the burden of selfing gets put down. And it's like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was walking around with 500 pounds on my back. And then when I put it down, it's like, oh, this is the way. Because that activity of body and mind actually feels now it can start to participate in the world in a more fearless, enlivened way precisely because it realizes it doesn't need to be carrying that huge weight around of self. And then that's the last, is like integrating that weightlessness or emptiness of self-weight, self-centered weight. The integration, the ongoingness of no self-centered weight is the abiding and letting go, as it's sometimes translated. The unbinding. So I'll leave it here. No children today. So we have about eight to ten minutes to hear from a few folks in the community. Comments based on what you heard me say or questions that you might have. We'll start with Helen and then go to Lewis. Um, I thought this might resonate with other people. So I'm meditating and I'm pretty much in emptiness, feeling quite relaxed, 
not a lot of selfing, and then the thought comes up, what are you going to do this afternoon? And I thought, do you really need to go there? Well, yeah, we have to figure out at least one thing to do. So I go, all right, I'll let you do one thing. So it came up with, (laughs) (laughs) we can file. And all of a sudden there was this feeling of, um, the groundlessness went away, and I felt secure for a second, you know, because when, there is, when you don't know what you're going to do in the afternoon, there's this feeling of groundlessness. Yeah. So for a second I had this, oh, good, I feel secure knowing what I'm going to do. And then the thought came up, well, what happens if you can't do that? So then I go, okay, then I'm back to, um, you know, I'm fearful because this is all selfing. So I go, all right, we need to just let all this go and go back to the emptiness. The groundlessness is better than this neurotic activity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, just a beautiful example. And you can probably sense, like in how Helen gave us the blow-by-blow blow of her own mind in terms of that action or that um, mental activity. Like when that first thought arose, there was a feeling like uh, that feeling of no ground was being perceived as a personal threat. And if that mental activity could have been seen perfectly clearly, then the mind could have seen, well, that's just something being known, right? That, that happiness of dispassion is right now, I don't have to be concerned with mental activity. Even if the mental activity is, you're going to die, you know, like our mind saying that to ourselves. But okay, that's mental activity. It's just like when we're in a secluded space and we're meditating and we're just with the breath, so the more early stage of abiding, just in the secludedness of knowing the breath coming in, knowing the, it's like I'm not responsible for burglaries. I'm not even responsible for the building burning down right now. Right? I'm just responsible for knowing the breath coming in and knowing the breath going out. And to really notice how liberating that is. I want to pass the mic back to Lewis, all the way in the corner. Um, lots of thoughts went through my mind this morning. I'm really thankful for your train of thought or teaching this morning. Um, it struck me while I was listening that there's a difference between pursuing insight and being open to insight. Um, I also noticed that um, the, what I know of the Dharma, it seems like when I reflect upon it, I've seen it in a lot of different places, not under the heading of Buddhism. And that when I'm in nature, it really is a lot more present for me. The other thing that came up is you know, I, I realize, like, I'm always using terms like I and me. And I, have to, I feel like I want to keep reminding myself that that, is, that sense of I-ness or me-ness has always been changing. It's never been a fixed thing. And that my passion maybe about wanting to understand the oneness of creation really does 
I think eventually lead to a place of meanness, inus dissipating. Yeah. And it's fine. Yeah. And that's the a really um, that last point. Many really good points there, Lewis. But that last point you made is really important because I mentioned this right at the beginning. If we turn that idea of oneness and it into just the idea, then it just becomes another self-centered project that, you know, I'm aligned with oneness or I'm merging with oneness. But the mystical experience of that oneness, that is the absence of self, right? So that's the important thing that, that our practice has to be grounded in experience as opposed to appreciating the concepts that come in our practice. So it's like really important when we hear things like oneness that we get curious to directly, immediately explore that in our subjective experience. Because guaranteed, if not, we're going to have the idea of oneness and it's going to be just another thing the mind wants to hold on to. Yeah, Andrew, you want to go next? Yeah, um, yeah, my question is in regards to what you said about uh, turning away from or uh, retreating from the sensations of the body um, a lot of the time my practice will be to sort of like anchor myself in in the body and uh, like sort of I hold like a physical tension and then it almost like a hundred percent of the time that softens into some more like potent emotional sensations and I feel like my practice has been to sort of repolarize the mind towards feeling and making a container for those sensations instead of like tightening into physical tension or like trying to keep it away and like but I guess I, I, I've really sort of made it a practice to try and like stay with those and let them do what they want is that is that wrong well it can be it just depends on the attitude and this is a this is an art here because a lot of times the attention sticks with the unpleasant sensations in the body whether it's more subtle like an energetic or more gross, like your knee really hurts. But regardless, if the attention is staying there because the mind feels obliged to fix something, even in a very refined sense of fixing, then there's going to be some suffering there. So it can be very useful to experiment sometimes like knowing that the body is still discombobulated, it isn't in a good place, but choosing not to pay attention to it in order to prove to the mind that I'm not obsessively dependent on the body getting better. How do I prove that to myself? I'm going to go open to hearing for a while, right? A more neutral experience. And just let the sensations of the body do what they're going to do. And that's really important, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, that we don't just reflexively keep looking at the painful or difficult experience, but we realize mind has this capacity to let go and look at something else, too even if it's the big predominant experience in the present moment. Right. And it's interesting because I feel like it's, it's oftentimes like a little of column A and a little of column B because there is sort of this like curiosity about these sensations and sort of like the, the life of the nature of these sensations. But I think there is also like a little bit of uh, hope or an expectation like that it will like it'll change. Yeah. Yeah. And if you survey a lot of long-time practitioners, they'll tell you that a lot of the deep insights have come not when the mind, you know, just to be provocative, has been spending minutes staring at a particular experience, but it's in transitions. 
like I'm kind of going through my day, and all of a sudden the awareness notices maybe a chronic problem or chronic uh, tendency, but in those first moments of having not been paying attention to it and then opening to it in a really fresh way, it really gets it in a way that it hasn't gotten it before. Because it, precisely because it wasn't just sort of staring, because generally when we're holding the attention on an object, there's some parental energy. And that parental energy keeps the mind from really seeing things as they are. Yeah, we need to leave it here. So just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time for maybe one or two breaths together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.